Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome back to A House on Fire, the podcast series exploring the book, A House on Fire, How Adventist Faith Responds to Race and Racism. My name's Nathan Brown. I'm co-editor of the book and book editor at Science Publishing Company based just out of Melbourne, Australia. And uh, with thanks to our friends at Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices, the two podcasts that are sharing this limited series as we explore some of the big ideas in the book, and particularly by talking to uh, various of the contributors to chapters within the book. And today on this episode, we have the privilege of talking to Dr. Michael Campbell, who is Director of Archive Statistics and Research for the North American Division and author of multiple books. Dr. Campbell, how many books is your count at this point? It's 12 right now, moving on to 13. Yeah. Okay. And I just Trying read to catch your up to you. <laughs> I think I've got a little bit of a head start, so you do. <laughs> but I'm going to have to work hard to keep ahead of you. All right. I just read your book on um, pastors. We stand on their shoulders and mm-hmm. appreciated the insights that they gave to some of those untold stories of Adventist history. So uh, appreciated that, and have even written a little review of it that I will share with you once it's posted. Um, Thank you for the work that you're contributing to Adventist history and I guess what that contributes to our self-understanding. Um, tell me a little bit about your day job as a place to begin. Um, archives, to, archives, research, and, and now I've got it wrong. <laughs> I practiced it. <laughs> you can make research. it up, Nathan. And something else. <laughs> Archive statistics and research. <laughs> Archive statistics and research. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. To some people, that sounds like the most boring job in the world. Um, right. To others, such as yourself, it's the most exciting thing you could do. So tell us about it and why it is exciting. Sure. If you ask my kids, they'd probably tell you that I was the uh, story storyteller in chief for the NAD. So that's kind of the unofficial title that I have Mm -hmm. in the building, just sharing worships and trying to bring the past to life a little bit. And so that's, that's part of what I, what I do Um, in terms of the, each of those different areas, you know, the, the archives, we have to make sure that historic preservation takes place both at the North American division and across all of our church entities throughout the North American division. So, you know, a a big part of what I'm doing is, is just trying to look and see, Hey, there's uh, I just found a, major uh, manuscript paper collection that uh, uh, procured that and that will go into one of our Adventist archives in North America here in the division. And, and so we're, you know, always looking for stuff. How can we have resources and, and making sure that um, not only historic preservation, that we promote Adventist history and a healthy understanding of our Adventist past. So that's part of it. And then of course, statistics, making sure that our regular statistical reports, I mean, there's a a lot of moving pieces with that within um, the secretariat department and then research. We have major research studies that are ongoing and continuing and new research studies. And so part of what uh, my role is to help facilitate and help uh, collaborate together so that uh, those processes are, are moving forward. So we have a good self-understanding of 
of both Adventism in its past as well as present and ongoing. So what are the trends that we're seeing in those demographics? Um, so we can get good data, good information to church leaders as they're making decisions. So that's part of part of what I do. Yeah. Well, I like the top of the title of storyteller in chief. That sounds so much more fun. <laughs> it is. And it I is. Certainly appreciate your books where you know that you've brought historical research, but really you're trying to tell a story and that's that's kind of combining the best of both worlds in my imagination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so you have one of your particular topics and this even goes back to your um PhD research, your doctoral research from some some years ago now, is the period of Adventist fundamentalism uh, or the shift to Adventist fundamentalism. And of course, there's those debates and discussions uh, around that. And your books, particularly your two books, 1919 and 1922, reflect on that period of history. And you've kind of brought that to the task of looking at Adventist faith and its response to race and racism. But in the survey that you give in your chapter in the book, you paint a much more, to some degree, a much more positive, in the at least in the context of this topic, uh, amongst our early pioneers, that racism and some of those issues we were much more inclusive and, I guess, socially active in that regard. Am I over idealizing? Um, at the world of our pioneers, or do you, do you really see that there was something socially innovative in what they were doing? Absolutely, and you know, I think some of this has been known before that that some of our early Adventist pioneers were abolitionists, right? So they're fighting against slavery, especially in an American context, right? So this is this is what's going on in the 19th century. It's it's dominating life and culture and politics and and so much more. And our earliest Adventist pioneers, and I would even say the early Millerite pioneers before there's even a Seventh-day Adventist church, that they were part of a broad milieu, uh, just a mindset that was passionate about making a difference in the world around them. And so um, it, which seems a little bit ironic, but but some historians have actually noted that the, there's kind of a, it's a sweet irony that you're waiting for the world to end. So, I mean, people just naturally assume, why would Adventists want to be social activists because everything's going to be destroyed? But but actually, it does make sense because if you believe Jesus is coming, you need to work to make a little bit of heaven on earth. You need to work towards mm-hmm. living out what it's going to be like to live in heaven right now. So, which means there's an obvious, you know, disconnection there with in their world in that, you know, slavery, they couldn't imagine and see how slavery would be in heaven. So, uh, which, by the way, was an idea that was around in the 19th century that mm-hmm. there would be slavery, there would be, a, you know, a black and white heaven. You, you do see people teaching or espousing those kinds of ideas. And <clears throat> incidentally, they would justify that on the Bible, you know, Onesimus and so on, that <laughs> here's here's these references to slavery in the Bible. So you can argue that slavery is biblical, and, and people did. But, mm. but early Adventists uh, had at least enough of a hermeneutic, and I think this goes with their how they interpreted Scripture, right? Uh, that that they could see that, that not only did they have these prophetic 
understandings that shapes their mindset, but that same identity shaped how they related to the world around them. And they, they realized that they had to work not just passively, but actively to fight against uh, slavery. And so pretty much all of our early Millerite pioneers um, through early Sabbatarian Adventism during this early formative time period, you see um, that they were definitely abolitionist and in new research is coming out. There's, there's a number of individuals that have been doing work on this uh, probably most significantly Kevin Burton, I think is working on this topic hmm. related to his dissertation, but, um, but there are others and collectively uh, we're starting to get a better picture picture that, that Adventists weren't just kind of passive when it came to politics and social issues that, um, they were activists, not it, it, put it a different way. They weren't political for the sake of being political. They were political in so much as their faith informed their politics and they realized they needed to make a difference in the world around them. And, and the glowing issue of the day was slavery and, and they worked against it. So even William Miller, he, he writes mm. his earliest, uh, shares his earliest sermons on the second coming. It's in the Vermont Telegraph. Well, that was an abolitionist newspaper. And then later, James White, he publishes. Uh, the Present Truth, which is the first Sabbatarian Adventist periodical. is This is huge. Hmm. And I always wondered, why did he print with this one particular press in Middletown? There were several presses there. But then I looked to see what were the other, what was the, some of the other literature that was coming off that same press. Mm-hmm. And it, it was an abolitionist printer. So, so James White w- was part of this kind of broader network and, mm. and knew to go to someone who is an abolitionist. So, uh, to, to help him get a start, a foothold when it came to starting his own publication, his own understanding of present truth. And so that context, that framework of abolitionism was was so obvious that I think um, that some of that was taken for granted. And we just lose in, in terms of historical, uh, we, we lose that, that what was so obvious to them. We, we've just kind of we've, we've missed or lost some of that and, and not realized just how activist um, our pioneers were. But when it came to slavery, they were working for it. And and even you go back to Battle Creek, you see a number of people that were church headquarters that were African-American. We didn't know they were black because nobody thought it was important enough to really mention it. So it's only been more recent history. Stan mm-hmm. Hickerson found uh, the Hardy family and some some others that that James and Ellen White were staying in their home and they're having dinner together. And this was just kind of a, a natural thing. And nobody's like, oh, we had a particular family of a different racial ethnicity because that wasn't important to them. They And, and so it's only been more recently we found memory statements. Oh, yeah, there was that particular black family that was there in Battle Creek. And the, w- wait a minute, really? I mean, how come? Well, hmm. just because they were living in a, a very egalitarian kind of manner that uh, was empowering where they valued and, and, and looked past um, color blinders that was were causing major racial divides within American culture and society uh, during that early 19th century. So it's it's amazing. A lot more work probably needs to still be done. I'm glad that you know people like Kevin Burton are working on this and there are still yet others. Uh, but but we're definitely seeing a more nuanced picture, but that clearly Clearly, our early Adventist pioneers were social activists. They were reformers through and through, not just with like health reform, the second coming, but politically, you know, and this was this is a political hot button topic 
uh, and and working for a little bit of heaven on earth and and that just is so abundantly clear and of course by the way it, you know, our pioneers weren't perfect i'm not saying that if you look hard enough you're not going to find somebody somewhere that was maybe had slaves or something i but but i i really you don't really see that i, I it's like 99 percent, you know they're hmm. they're abolitionists and i have yet to find anything of the contrary uh so far so yeah yeah now i think it is fascinating how even just socially communal you know they lived in the same communities as some of the early abolitionists and you know when <laughs> for example um and i can't remember where i came across this story but you know when the whites were based in rochester new york and you know just down the street basically from frederick Douglass and the work that his publishing was doing with the north star and you Absolutely. know even, you know the they would have crossed each other in the streets they would have mm-hmm. Yeah. They would have clearly known each other. And Sojourner yeah. tr- Truth, uh, Sojourner Truth in Battle Creek, where did she, mm. you know, in her later years or more mature years, where did she finally settle down? She lived in Battle Creek and she clearly worked and knew, you know, many early Sabbatarian Adventists found them to be friends. And mm. at, at one point, you know, I, as I recall, the her funeral uh, part of the arrangements was uh, the largest building in town was the Dime Tabernacle. So, mm. so there was some kind of you know some plans, some expectations that these were you know her you know these were friends. They were her mm. friends, even if she didn't fully become necessarily a Seventh Day Adventist, but it's part of a network, right? Yeah, and even um, in Gil Valentine's book on J. N. Andrews, there's a, one or two references in there to he was in a particular town. And he went to hear Frederick Douglass speak. Exactly. You know, that was the yeah. thing that was happening. They were on the same trains. They were on the same speaking circuits. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that's a fascinating thing that even when I've read biographies of Frederick Douglass, for example, you are, to me, that is giving me insights into where our Adventist pioneers actually were on some of these things. And yeah, I think that's a... Yeah. It has been an overlooked part of our history, as you've mentioned. Well, there is a tendency or a temptation to have a tabla rasa, you know, kind of approach to Adventist history that mm-hmm. Adventists were exceptional and, and just mm-hmm. arose out of nothing, you know. And, you know, you can still believe God led in the history of this church, but but also recognize the social context out of which it arose. And, and that's where some of the most fun and... I think illuminating Adventist historiography is taking place with that kind of context, you know? Mm, Yeah. And I guess one of the things that I do in listening to you retelling this story, we, it's a very Adventist thing to talk about getting ready for Jesus to come. And, you know, that is one of those strange statements that kind of means whatever the person saying it wants it to mean. Uh, but one of the things that I guess in the way I've always heard it in my growing up in Adventism is that it's always been a personal thing. Mm-hmm. But when we go back and look at these social movements that the early Millerites and Adventists were a part of, well, this was a social thing as well. And that undoing the sin of, ra- of racism and slavery and some of those things was part of getting ready for Jesus to come. You know, if he was going to judge the world, 
this was one of the sins that God was judging the world for. Yeah. And I think that's a fascinating way of even, you know, if we still use the language of getting ready for Jesus to come, which certainly it is in some parts of the church, um, what if we were to expand that back out to that social dynamic of it, I think would be a fascinating question to ask what that might mean today. Mm. Yeah, I, I think, I think you know, reflecting upon that, I've thought about this myself, you know, because in more recent times we have, and again, I'm talking out of an American, North American <laughs> context, right? The uh, Black Lives Matter, right? You know, mm. and over the last few years and, and several of my colleagues that were faculty at the university where I was teaching at the time. And as I listened to them, began to hear some of their pain and some of the stories that they shared of their experiences and not from the distant past, but more recent past, right. That, mm. uh, you know, just, you know, not edifying to, to go into all the details, but, but, you know, it was, it was painful. Right. Mm. And I realized, Oh my goodness. Um, I can research and write about Adventist history and how our pioneers were abolitionists and everything else. But am I actually willing to take those same kind of steps in my own life? And I realized that I, I had to not just sit on the sidelines. I had to do something about that. So I went with one of my best friends, um, African-American colleague, and we went hand in hand and we marched. It was peaceful. In fact, we, we had the police mm. chief marching next to us too in our <laughs> local Black Lives Matter because he's like, you know, uh, we need to be together in this. And I, I, I just really appreciated that kind of spirit. And and then at, at the particular event that I was at, it was just people sharing their stories and tears were shed. And it was a very moving experience. And I'm glad that I went, um, but I almost didn't go because I thought, oh, you know, this is going to be political. We shouldn't be political. And I realized, well, we need to let our faith inform our politics. So I'm not just like being partisan trying to push a candidate or whatever. I'm trying to actually address a social issue that still continues to be problematic in our culture and society today. And so at that point, then I realized I, I need to be an activist too, hmm. not, not, a, not a partisan, blind political activist. I mean, Ellen White warns about that, right? Yeah. But, yeah. but she wasn't against, in fact, quite the opposite when it came to social issues like temperance in her day and slavery. She's like, you know, to a, you know, Adventists need to wake up kind of thing, right? She's hmm. admonishing Adventists, don't be sleepy, don't sit on the sidelines. Um, in fact, I think there was a temperance issue that was on the ballot. And she's even encouraging Adventists to go out on Sabbath morning, and, you know, hmm. go out on Sabbath and vote kind of thing, right? So yeah. that's not your normal thing you would expect to hear Ellen White to say. But, but she realizes that our faith, um, it's like a compunction that we just we have to do something about it to make a difference. So um, I'm, I'm, you know, that that um, so it's not enough to just write about Adventist history. We have to we're living it and we have to be informed by the past and let it change how we live our lives today. And and I still need to ask those issues. I'll, I'll give you another quick example is, you know, climate change. Right. Um, hmm. You know, this is this is one of the, the burning topics that's going to. Uh, shape our world in, in the coming years and decades and until Christ comes, um, until that point. Um, and, and intriguingly, at the end of Revelation, it, it says, when there shall be sea no more. And I've always wondered, why why does it say that at the end of Revelation, unless, you know, our, the rising sea levels is, is some kind of really important issue at the very end of time. Hmm. And it's, so this is intriguing that, that here we have 
climate change, a burning topic. Do we as Adventists have something to say about that? Or we're just going to say, well, it's all going to burn anyways. But don't we, aren't we entrusted <laughs> with the sacred responsibility of caring for the earth? I mean, from, from the Garden of Eden, that's part of our responsibility. So we need to learn how to do that now in preparation mm-hmm. for the world to come. And and there's a very interesting book I, I, I came across. Actually, my wife, Heidi, who's, who's pursuing her own doctoral studies, she came across it first. The Gospel of Climate Skepticism. We're examining a number of different groups, evangelical groups, including those that are kind of a, uh, and, and found that of the different evangelical groups in America, the Adventists mm. were some of the most uh, proactive and, and, and aware and conscious at, at being environmentally uh, sensitive to the, the challenges of, of the environment and being proactive. And so mm. this would seem to be the, I you know, I almost was afraid to read the research, you know, I was kind of assuming maybe, <laughs> maybe, you know, <laughs> my fellow brother and sister Adventist. Um, I mean, of course, this doesn't represent all. This is just a particular sample research study that this person did. But they found, at least in the sample study, that the Adventists were um, some of the, the most progressive and the most open to. And so this is interesting to me, both historically and in, in the present, that that we can allow our faith to shape the way we view the world and how we react to current issues in our culture and society and world that um, clearly shape the way we think and will shape uh, so much of our lives moving forward. Um, mm. And so, yeah, our faith, our faith is important. It matters. And we have to keep thinking in those kinds of terms of what matters and how does our core convictions is we as Seventh-day Adventists, we value the Sabbath. We value creation. So we of all people should be some of the most proactive people in the mm. world in terms of caring for the environment. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. Thank you for saying that. And I think that's something we need to say a whole lot more. Uh, but getting back to the your chapter. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I went down a rabbit trail on that one. <laughs> it, it was a good diversion and a worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, in your chapter, you you move on from our early days, of, you know, the early pioneers of Millerite, Millerism and Adventism, mm, and then yeah. you you know, you touch on a few of the key stories of the, I guess, the second half of the nineteenth century, where you know some of the early uh, Adventist leaders who actually were uh, black uh, people, you know, the first African American pastor that was ordained. Some of those stories which mm-hmm. are also, you know, you go into those stories a little bit further in your We Stand on Their Shoulders book of some diverse people that were, that you know, as you've mentioned, we didn't even know were people of colour or came from those backgrounds, you know, to some degree, uh, that we've, we're more and more hearing some of those stories that haven't been the stories uh, and kind of, you know, not undermine but, show a broader picture than just the the bearded white men that are often our imagination of the uh, or the pictures that we actually actually do see of what adventist pioneers look like um so i think that's a significant part of your your work that you've been doing perhaps expanded upon in in some of your other books uh but then you get to what is the key point of what you're talking about here and uh the shift to fundamentalism in the early 20th century and the impact that had on our relationship with social issues, to use that kind of term. So why did that happen? 
And what was that social, you know, the impact in on our relationship to social issues as a key part of it? Yeah, absolutely. Because this is, I think, one of the most striking like reversals in Adventist history. Because you get to the early 20th century and the rise of fundamentalism, and in a nutshell, I mean, there's a lot of different ways of defining it, but but really, you know, um, in American culture, again, specifically. You have conservative Protestants or evangelicals, as they came to be known, you know, um, at that time who were stridently defending the faith. And in fact, George Marsden once quipped that an evangelical or a fundamentalist is an evangelical who's just mad about something. So it's this this idea that you're having you're on the defense, you know, having to protect yourself. And with the rise of modernism and liberal thinking and questioning miracles and the veracity of the atonement and mm. even the Bible, you know, um, and creation. Uh, so you have new theories of, of even evolution, right? So all of this is putting um, conservative Christians in a kind of a siege mentality. And mm. so they're having to be on the defensive, protect the faith and so on. And as the fundamentalists gain traction with American culture and society, especially around World War One, Ellen White had just died. So it's a kind of, it's a very tender time within Adventism as well. And mm. so you see Adventism shifting towards, it's very attracted to fundamentalism. And, and so you have a dichotomy between the modernists or liberals and the conservatives or the fundamentalists. And, and so part of what I try to point out is, you know, why why was it only two options uh, neither one was the right option for adventism i would argue okay because mm. i had some people say well you critique fundamentalism therefore you're modernist well that's that's laughable um mm. I, I, it, either extreme is, is 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 a problem for for adventism but the temptation that adventists face in the 19 teens and 20s was the temptation towards fundamentalism i, I can't find any examples during that time period of, of Seventh-day Adventists that thought modernism was a good idea. In fact, you have people like Daniels, the church president at the time, saying, we're the fundamentalists of the fundamentalists, <laughs> or the yeah. true fundamentalists. And so, and the problem is, is when you do theology by who you're against, this, you have a polarization, a bifurcation, whatever, mm. and and that's clearly what's taking place within Adventism and, and, and the wider fundamentalist movement, because they're pushing themselves to more extreme positions increasingly right and and where it becomes really a sore point in adventism is that you have some people really pushing for uh an inerrant uh infallible way of viewing inspired writings for the fundamentalist that was the bible for adventists it's the of course it's the bible but but especially ellen white mm. and that's where the rub is is because ellen white you know she revised her writings she was far from <laughs> inerrancy she didn't teach that or early adventist pioneers didn't teach that and so really the question is is what kind of fundamentalism is going to take forefront of uh, in terms of adventism or moderate kind that doesn't really embrace the inerrancy versus a more strident kind that does and so you see these two varieties of adventist fundamentalism if if you please that that are really beginning to to kind of struggle for you know the for the the, the soul the core identity of <laughs> of Adventism and that that struggle that tension is where Adventism is in the twenties and and as Adventists move increasingly towards fundamentalism and some to more extreme versions of fundamentalism right um, it's not surprising that among the fundamentalists you begin to see 
um, a couple of, of phenomena taking place. One is that the evangelicals, Protestants, whoever you want to call them in the 19th century, who were social activists against, you know, against uh, the evils of alcohol and, mm. and, and health, re- health reformers, stress reformers, prison reform, education reform. I mean, just the list goes on and on and on. And of course, abolition too, right? Yeah. And you see that in the spirit of being defensive and having to defend the faith, that that really they're they're concerned that if they're activists in the same way that they've been in the past, that that this is going to um, undermine their faith because the liberals they're the ones who are really the activists and they don't want to be liberal. So let the liberals be the activists pushing social reform because they see that as the path of human progress. And uh, so let's not be like the liberals. So, so they lose that sense of activism uh, among the fundamentalists in the twenties. And most groups that gravitate towards fundamentalism lose that similar sensibility or whatever uh, mm-hmm. of, of that, of social activism. And, and when they do that, you see some changes taking place Um I've written about this a little bit in my 1922 book in terms of, of gender where, you know, uh, there's mm-hmm. a theology of hierarchy, right? And so women are kind of pushed out of church leadership and, and evangelism as pastors. Uh, you see that in the wider fundamentalist movement. You see that mirrored within Adventism. And where this kind of comes to my chapter for, uh, and I'm so glad that it, it, it made a nice, uh, just a perfect place because really find the right spot for this and then you came along and was like hey this is uh this is a god said answer to prayer uh and this chapter is is exactly that examining this this topic of of race because you have among the fundamentalists again this isn't every fundamentalist but you do see it becomes very popular in those circles to embrace um a theology of a black and white heaven and we're not not surprisingly some people even went so far as to embrace the Ku Klux Klan. So, mm. which, if people aren't familiar with that, it was kind of a, a nativist movement in America during this time, became extremely popular with millions of adherents in the 1920s. Mm. Um, and, and xenophobic, you know, against immigrants, um, was for private Christian education. And of course, it was very overtly racist that that black people were inferior, and this this was a, a big the the white race is superior, and so that's why they have uh, tactics of intimidation and cross burnings, a lot of kinds of things like that. Mm-hmm. And what struck me, and probably one of the most surprising things I've ever come across in in Adventist history, is that there were some, again, not all, but there were some Adventists during that same time period, the 1920s, who began to embrace the Ku Klux Klan, hmm. uh, some yeah. rather openly, even, you know, going to Klan rallies and, and so on. So that, that has to be one of the more shocking things. But the point being, and the point that I try to make in my chapter more broadly, is that there's this reversal. You go from early Millerites and early Adventist pioneers that are abolitionists, right? In the 1920s, you have the church that's that that's having it's struggling uh with with people some people teaching a theology of a black and white heaven within adventism basically right this this idea Mm. of 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 basically a a racist racist way of viewing um adventist theology that that kind of racism had seeped in subtly is is kind of how i see it and Mm. it began to show it's insidious fingers in, in ways. And, and you know, as an Adventist historian, you kind of have to ask yourself the question, do I, do I even write about this, right? 
Yeah. Do I, do, you know, I mean, you know, this, this is the stuff that doesn't necessarily make you, <laughs> when you find something that, you know, you know, it does, it's not the heartwarming fuzzies, right? That mm. that's the history. I enjoy writing, of course, you know, I, I want to affirm our faith and our history, but I also think we have to be honest about the past. And mm. that means that when we find stuff like this, that is problematic rather than just kind of be like, Hmm, I, I, I don't think I saw that and kind of move on. Mm. Um, I, I need to actually step back a little bit and think carefully what's going on here and why did this happen and, and write about it, hopefully in a constructive way. At least that's, that's my hope. That's my heart's mm. desire. So that, that way we can maybe have serious conversations today because race continues to be an issue in, in, in not just American, but many different cultures and places. So how can we allow our faith to inform uh, how we view the world around us. Um, and, and we can look to Adventist history. And, and I think this is true. Ellen White points this out about the Bible. It's the greatest source of inspiration in the Bible is God points out not only the all the victories, but also all the times they fell uh, yeah. of God's people. And, and so I think we have to be honest with our history and say, hey, um, th- this is kind of a disappointing moment for, for me. This is, this is definitely a reversal where you see um, Adventism's really struggling now with race and and in 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 many ways it sets the stage for um later challenges that the church will face specifically in america that will lead eventually to having uh separate conferences regional conferences we call them and everything else that's a that's another chapter for another book for another time i'm sure (laughs) yes but but that didn't happen by sheer happen you know by accident that Mm. there was a context out of which this arose and and i think fundamentalism uh paved the way or contributed at, at least in no small part to to adventism's struggle with with race uh and definitely we see this reversal in terms of how adventists understand and view this particular um social uh, very important social um uh, context yeah so one of the criticisms that would be aimed at someone at at us for having this conversation in our time and place would be that we are simply following, you know, a social trend uh, that oh, yeah. that Black Lives Matter around us are talking, you know, that these kind of movements in the past few years, we're, we're following along behind. And then when you've narrated the history in the way that you have, you'd say, well, to some degree, that's what, that's a criticism that could be aimed at the church in the, you know, or the early Adventist pioneers in the 1830s, 18 to 1850s to 1890s. It's also something that could be, the church could be criticised for in the 1920s and the 30s. Um, so does the church, you know, from a historical survey, and I'm, I guess I'm particularly looking at the Adventist church because that's the context in which we're having this conversation, do we always simply just follow the society around us? When do we actually get ahead and lead morally or or are we always simply buffeted by you know the winds that are around us and and we actually can't transcend that in any meaningful way how do you respond to that kind of criticism yeah you know i mean i I, i've thought about that because that you know i i actually that's what made me hesitate right is is that i i don't want to be the the you know, just jumping on board and 
you know, just because it's popular or just because, you know, uh, whatever, you know, and, and, you know, I lived in parts of the country where it wasn't popular to do that too, which made it even a little (laughs) bit more awkward. Right. Because then it's like, well, you know, you're, you're different. You're, it's kind of an othering process. Right. So then, um, and, and so that did, that made me hesitate again. Right. And then I realized that I have to allow my core convictions, my faith, Mm. my beliefs to shape how I choose to interact with the world around me and the, what is the actual right thing that God is calling me to do. And I'm not saying any, this is right for anyone else. I'm just saying this person right here, this heart human being is, is, as I, as a, at one lone Ephesus historian that I, I have to do something and I can't sit idly by. And, and again, I, you know, having to listen to the stories of, of my colleagues and, and people that I have developed connections to and, and friendships that, that have been meaningful. And so um, I, I think, and incidentally, my, my philosophy of, of all of this, and you see this in the early pioneers, is how do we deal with social issues and racism and everything else? It's got to be through relationships, hmm. through yeah. relationships, meaningful relationships, serious conversations, and even more serious listening. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a part of of, of all of this. Now, um, as an Adventist historian, I can give you examples of both, right? Where the church has transcended and risen to the occasion to to critique the culture and world around them in in very constructive and meaningful ways. And then you can see other times where uh, you know you see the larger culture has influenced the church. Um, uh, in, in ways that are not always so positive. And, and, uh, so yeah, there's plenty of examples of both Nathan. And, uh, I think this topic itself, as we're talking together right now, um, illustrates how the church has done both, you know, <laughs> risen yeah. to the occasion and at other times has failed. And, um, that should give us a sense of humility, not to, stand in judgment of the pioneers and cast stones or whatever is to say, you know, we, we celebrate the good things, the triumphs and the times where we've fallen short, then we, we pause and uh, it gives us uh, hopefully a moment to, to reflect and say, Hey, how am I living my life? And what can I learn from this? And how, how should I live my life differently right now? Um, so that I'm not, you know, because we always like to put ourselves in as the hero of the story in the past, right? Mm. And uh, the reality is, is that most most often is we're probably the laws I fear, you know, we passively just kind of fall into these things if we don't prayerfully and earnestly ask God uh, to guide us each and every day. And so it's on our knees, opening the word of God. So the pioneers mm. did, right? It's It's taking the word of God seriously and saying, hey, um, how does this impact me personally right now, uh, where, where I am and, and how can I, again, how can I pay attention, have my eyes open with discernment so that, um, I'm not just, again, going with every whim and trend that's going on with society. How do I let my Adventist, distinctly Adventist values shape how, I live my life moving forward and, and the issues that we will face and continue to face will be different than our pioneers for sure. I doubt mm-hmm. that Ellen White ever thought about climate change as a major issue. Right. Uh, mm. But yet um, the issues will change, but those biblical values that both informed our pioneers can inform us 
to um, continue in their footsteps and, and continue to address those, those social issues um, because we care deeply about our faith and because we care deeply about Scripture. Very cool. Well, thank you, Dr. Campbell, for those words of insight drawn from our history. Uh, I recommend to those listening along to check out, I guess as a starting point, your chapter in A House on Fire. That's probably a good place to start. But particularly your two books, if you if people have that interest to then go back to 1919 and 1922, and of course those two books that were released on the centenaries of those years and those particular events that you described there um, to, to help us reflect on not just what happened 100 years ago, but how that shapes and informs who we are now and both what we might be choosing differently today, but also some of the things that we do actually want to continue to work on from from that time. So thank you for the work that you do and the the questions that you're asking, not just the the, the answers that you're you're coming up with, but I think you're asking us good questions. Thanks for having me, Nathan. So thank you for being part of A House on Fire, our podcast series. Thank you to Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices. I've been Nathan Brown. I'll catch you on the next episode. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear.